Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena everyone, it's Mickey here. You are listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to national powerlifting champion mentor and registered nutritionist Julianne Taylor about her training, her nutrition approach and her general awesomeness. And awesome she is. Julianne and I have known each other for almost 10 years now and we have a shared interest and passion for evolutionary health, for nutrition and training in general, particularly strength training evidently, and uh, protein intake in women, but also being quite practical about our approaches. So we share a lot of similarities and I've learned a lot from Julianne over the years. She was one of the first zone nutritionists in New Zealand and we discuss the similarities between zone, paleo and what we advocate now. We also discuss the importance of calories in assisting fat loss. Julianne is a wealth of information and we do talk a lot of practical tips here, so I think you'll find this a great conversation. Before we jump into the interview, I would just like to remind you that you have two days to sign up to Monday's Matter September edition. So this kicks off Monday 5th of September. It is an eight-week group fat loss program. It utilizes protein sparing modified fast days that are couched in and an approach that could be your forever diet. You guys know I love protein, you know I love vegetables, and I'm all about strategic carbohydrate for when you need it. And also the approach that I take, being dairy and gluten, predominantly gluten-free, is such a game changer when it comes to things like hormonal health, particularly in those perimenopausal years, but it isn't just a female program. And I have plenty of men go through it and just absolutely love it. So that is Monday's Matter. You will find links in the show notes to that. And you have, if you're picking this up on Wednesday, you have two days or three days, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, to jump on in. And you will have an amazing bunch of people going through it with you. It is all about community and that strength of community. In order to help you kickstart your fat loss uh, into your forever diet approach. All right, team, please enjoy this interview I have with Julianne Taylor. Julianne, Julianne Taylor. It is um, great to have this opportunity to sit down and chat to you because you've been obviously a colleague over the years, a good friend um, and a mentor in this nutrition space. And I have learned so much from you in terms of just like obviously in the nutrition space, but also of what you can actually do as you get older. And I think that's such a valuable thing that I want um, us to talk about. So other people are also sort of inspired by it as well. So I'm really interested to chat about your career tra trajectory, but also, of course, your athletic endeavors. And um, can you have imagined, Julianne, that as a 62-year-old, uh, that you would be representing sort of New Zealand in the World Championships for powerlifting if you had to think about yourself like 40 years ago. Was it ever on your radar? 
Never, never. So I have never been particularly athletic. Like I wasn't one of those kids that showed athletic promise. So, you know, like when we're in primary school, to give you an example, we we all had to play netball um, in my school, my little school. And the teams were from A to F. And there wasn't anything after that. And I was in the F team. Oh. So <laughs> <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't that great. I did show a bit of promise in swimming when I did, I did some squad training for a couple of years. But um, at five foot one, you're never going to make a swimmer. So that kind of dropped off the radar. And after that, I didn't really do anything, just on and off to the gym for years and years. And yes, and to answer your question, no, I could, it's, kind of unimaginable and very weird because it doesn't feel like I'm not a I don't regard or never have regarded myself as an athlete so it's come as a complete surprise yeah but are you sort of owning it now it seems like what I love it when I'm looking at your Twitter feed and I'm looking at your Instagram feed and you show pictures of you in training but also video and, and things like that, I feel like you're sort of coming into it and sort of beginning to own it a little bit more. Uh, yes, yes, although it still doesn't feel like an identity. I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It's like I identify myself as, I don't know, somebody who likes learning for example yeah and nutrition and working with people and figuring stuff out um it's almost a little bit of a side thing yeah 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 so how did that even eventuate so how did you get into the sport because I feel like if I think about people I know in my life who um sort of have a certain identity or way of doing things it's actually such a difficult a transition to try something new and and then actually sort of excel at it. So I feel like you're quite unusual in that regard. Yet also it is could be quite inspirational for people listening. Yes. So I mean as I said I've always I've been to the gym on and off since I was 18. So being in a gym environment to kind of keep fit and look good <laughs> Um, has always been in my background. That's always been there. I mean, I think like a lot of people, you know, just casually going to the gym and and then dropping it for a while and then going back. As a teenager um, and in my 20s, I used to ride a bike a lot to get around. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a bit nervous of doing that these days, but um, I used to do a lot. So I guess my legs got a good workout on a daily basis um so there's a little bit of that in the background um anyway how did I get into it uh 2009 I started working with CrossFit gym um because they were really interested and this goes into my nutrition side in having a coach that understood the zone diet because I don't know if you know CrossFit but the zone diet and the paleo diet are kind of the the diets they've combined and promote to their um, people. So I went off to this CrossFit gym, started coaching some of the clients, thought, well, if I'm going to talk to people about nutrition, I better figure out what it's like to actually do CrossFit. So I started doing CrossFit a couple of times a week. 
um, eventually went to four times a week. And that's when I first started the deadlift, the squat as movements. And yeah, I noticed that um, one of my tendencies was I was able to get strong relatively quickly for my age. So after I stopped CrossFit, because I just had some little niggling injuries that didn't clear up, um, I went just back to normal kind of a gym. And one of the PTs there, personal trainers, she was advertising a like an eight-week one-on-one coaching for powerlifting for females. So I thought, oh, that's a cool thing to do. I might as well just do something that challenges myself and just see what happens. So that's where it started. So I started at an above average strength for my age um, when I did her powerlifting program. And really enjoyed it noticed some pretty quick strength improvements and just kept going because I liked it and I liked the the challenge of doing something with an outcome versus just going to the gym yeah 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 and um it got to the point where she said you know you're probably strong enough to compete and I'm like what (laughs) (laughs) that's crazy yeah looked up um where I stood in terms of um being able to compete and yes my lifts were competitive in terms of um at a regional level so I um, asked around got a powerlifting coach and did my first competition in um April 2018 Auckland Regionals. So your coach for powerlifting as a competitor was different from the one that you started with in your gym? Yes, so the personal trainer hadn't been a competitor herself. So she didn't know the the, the rules for competition and the specific um, challenges that you face in a competition, like, you know, getting squat depth and the calls they make. Um, while you're doing your lifts so yeah she recommended I found a powerlifting coach and so after Auckland regionals so regionals my goal was to <laughs> I, at that stage I was under 60 I was 59 and my goal was to qualify for nationals so I just managed the qualifying total for nationals and then nationals was in August so I kept training and my goal for nationals was to qualify for worlds so in nationals I hit the qualifying total for worlds so is it a total of the weight you can lift a sum of all of the weight over the the four lifts is that right the three Three lifts lifts. yes so you're Deadlift, yep. your squat and your bench gets added together and that's your total. And um, each category has a qualifying total. So I wouldn't, you know, I'm a mile off qualifying for the opens, but in my age category and in my weight category, I qualify for I qualified for worlds. So yes, so um that was a little bit surreal really and then I was like, okay, well, if I qualify, I might as well apply to go and compete for New Zealand. And I was accepted to compete in the Masters 3, it was, because it was my first year as Masters 3, just turning 60, um, in the under 52 weight category. And that was in June 2019 in uh, Sweden. Wow, amazing. And what was that experience like? It- I gosh, I don't know. It's I I just 
the way I approach things is just put one foot in front of the other. It's like when something things overwhelming, it's like it's like a marathon, you know, you know, you just keep taking one step at a time and then eventually you're at the end. So <laughs> it feels a little bit like that. So I just kept training. I was very focused on training because it was very important to me that I didn't let myself down, that I didn't, you know, let New Zealand down. Um, so training, eating, sleeping was my big focus. Um, leading up to that for the six months leading up to that yeah and I think when you just focused on that it's not so nerve-wracking because you feel quite prepared um, but it was yeah I don't know don't know how to describe it it was a little bit surreal being that environment with all these other small <laughs> strong <Yeah>. old women <laughs> like me <laughs> actually you're right because like, in real life it's a bit of an anomaly actually yes yes so to have us all together in a group was kind of it was really nice you know it was nice sort of talking to them getting to know them and their background and why they're there as well and all with the same goal in mind to to do well in an international competition so so Julianne yeah. you're um in that sort of six months training period um obviously so how often would you have trained in the weeks I'd love to sort of dive a little bit into the training that you do and then of course talk about the nutrition approach and and how you sort of approached that so first the training how does that look so at that time I was doing four sessions a week mm -hmm. um, and two sessions were back to back but I needed enough time for recovery for some of the heavier ones like the squats and the deadlifts. I have to take a day off in between so a good 48 hours between um, lower body strength exercises to have good recovery. Um, typically sessions at the gym would take around three hours so it's not like I don't know if you've seen some of the jokes where they talk about crossfitters you know taking taking a nap in between because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> literally it feels like that so in order to be able to continue to do heavy sets I mean you're never at your max it's always you know 80% or whatever um, but to be able to do a set of five or three or whatever it is squats at a reasonably heavy weight you need to actually have about I need a good five minutes for my muscles to get to a point where I can do that yeah. comfortably again so you know it's not like I, you probably spend three hours at the gym but two hours of that is resting yeah. in between <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then of course there's the warm-up so you have to warm up to your weight you can't just go oh I'm just going to do some 80 kilo squats you know you have to do body weight 20s 40s 60s 70s 80s so that takes and some mobility before that so that can take a good half hour before you even start on your lifting sets and did your um physique change quite a bit in that real focused time of training for worlds not enormously it it changed over the kind of years I guess but wasn't like a there was no sudden changes like I'm actually pretty much the same size as I was then but and my muscles have grown a little I think um, from what I see on sort of the 
scales that look at your body composition, I've actually only gained about a kilo or so muscle mass since I stopped crossfitting um, because I gained some then. Um, But what I do notice is the shape of my muscles is a little bit my butt. I've certainly got a, I tell you, (laughs) one thing I notice about getting older is your butt gets really flat unless you work your butt. <laughs> yes. So I've actually got the best butt of my life. <laughs> That's amazing. As a runner, I have no butt and have had none forever. So I'm not quite sure how mine is going to progress as I get older. Unless, of course, I also get into something like powerlifting and uh, preserve, <laughs> preserve <laughs> yeah. that. Um, glute work. Exactly. Um, yeah, and my muscles, the um, – the density, that's what I noticed, the big thing. So they're like super hard compared to what they yeah, were. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And also, of course, despite the change or the the lack of, not the lack of, but that your hypertrophy or muscle growth or gain hasn't been huge, the strength that you're able to, um, uh, that you've gained would be massive. And, you know, it's I actually was a... It was only a week ago, Julianne, I was listening to a podcast uh, and I can't, who was it? It was Peter Atia talking to uh, Andrew Huberman, I think, or it was someone like that. And they were talking about how that you can build, uh, oh no, it was Andy Galpin, if you know him. And he was saying how yeah. with hypertrophy, um, you do need that sort of rest in between to allow the muscle to grow. But strength is something you can work on every single day. And that was news to me, actually. If, it, if strength is all you're actually interested in rather than muscle growth per se, then you could do the same exercises every day. And I'm like, oh, I had no idea. Mm. I mean, that's part of the, the powerlifting is you do the same exercises over and over. I mean, there are variations and you do some auxiliary exercises. Um, but basically you're just doing a progressive overload program and you're doing the same exercises over and over and over again and you build strength for those specific exercises. And Julianne, your, with regards to your diet, and even though I'm talking about you sort of in the lead up to, to 2019 world, but I know that you've also competed much more recently as well. How does that change for you? Because, you know, you're, you're petite anyway, but obviously you're in a particular weight class. So how does that look for you in that um, where you naturally would sit at and then also where you'd need to get to? Yes, yeah, so I naturally sit at, I competed under 52, although I have competed under 57 just to see if there was any difference in terms of what I could achieve. Um but I naturally sit at 53, 54 kilos. So I always have to cut. And even to sit at 53, 54, I'm very, very conscious of how much I'm eating. Um, I'm not one of those people who can just kind of eat what they feel like and not put on weight. I've put on weight and always have done really, really easily, you know, and have been a lot heavier um, in my 20s. So I'm very conscious of portion sizes. I'm very structured with my eating. I have three meals a day, four or five hours apart, and a larger afternoon snack. So literally four, four meals a day and nothing in between, like just 
just something to drink. I don't snack. I am very conscious of how much protein I have. I think that's one of the biggest things. So with muscle protein synthesis, um, leucine is super important in getting over that leucine threshold four times a day with four-hour gaps in between. Um, and eating the optimal amount of protein four times a day is something I have been conscious of and do kind of quite rigorously because it plays, I believe, plays a really important role in being able to um, optimize my training, my strength and my recovery. Yeah. And even though, you know, you talk of to sit at your sort of more um, comfortable 53, 54, you still have to be conscious about what you eat. Do you find that a chore? Uh, sometimes. Yep, <laughs> I do. You know, like especially things like when I go away on holiday, for example, um, and there's lots of social events and, you know, people invite you for dinner and you're always having like the the platters and the snacks and the alcohol. I will just start to put on weight if I'm not really careful. So... And I dislike that because I can't fit my clothes and I just feel uncomfortable. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a chore. But on the other hand, it's just become a, a just a pattern and a habit. And it's just where I feel good. So the rewards are I feel really good because my eating makes me feel really healthy and really well and gives me lots of energy. It's it's like anything, isn't it? You go you go exercise even though you don't enjoy it, but you feel really good afterwards. So even though it's a bit of a chore, yeah, you like the rewards. So it's a bit like that with my eating. It's so interesting because I I often think I look at us and I think we're quite similar in in a lot of ways and in our sort of our love of nutrition and nutrition science and how geeky we are and we enjoy sport, different sort of sports, but the same sort of stuff as well. And I've always thought similar to you like if I ate anything at all I would absolutely gain weight but I don't feel like it's a chore to eat the way I eat because for all of the reasons that you've just described actually it's super easy for me to not be bothered if there's chocolate around because I don't I don't necessarily want it but it's at all in fact and I and I wonder how much of that is a learned thing or actually I truly don't want it, you know. And I always think nutritionists do restriction very well. And, you know, people, and, and that's almost like a bit of a superpower. So a lot of nutritionists I know, it doesn't feel like restriction because they're so good at it. Um, but I think you're right, it's that habit that's been put in place from very early on. Because, of course, your nutrition interest started well before your sort of powerlifting exactly. um, sort of interest. So you almost came into the sport with that sort of under your belt. Because I feel like people would find that a lot more challenging if it was if they were very new to the whole the whole kind of um, thing of of competing in sport. Yes, um, totally. And I only I think my ability to exercise has been because of my diet and not the other way around um because well before this I've always wanted to manage my weight because I've always put weight on easily so some of the diets I did when I was younger were ridiculous you know like to the point where I would count my calories but all I would eat is chocolate all day I mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think would not believe the nutty diets I was on when I was no younger. no I would believe you me cabbage soup diet did you try that 
No, but I did I did do the Israeli army diet, which is two days apples, two days cheese, two days boiled eggs, and two days chicken oh, breast. I would, don't know that that sounds all that bad, to be honest. <laughs> it's actually not that bad, and it's a really, really good yeah. way. And I think it came from the army, like um, getting them to lose weight quite quickly. You can eat as much as you want of those <laughs> yeah. as well, which is good because you don't feel deprived. But <laughs> if you're only eating protein with a little bit of fat and then one day you're only eating apples, it's actually you get so sick of it. And also you don't feel deprived when you're eating you know, lots of protein, really. And it's only two days, you know, it's only eight days. Yeah, that. yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a very effective way to drop weight. Totally. And actually, and, you know, I, I think back to my sort of like uh, late teens and in my 20s when I, and when similar to you, and even early teens, really, when my mother and I were on different diets or whatever. And I think despite the fact that a lot of them were a bit crazy, um, you pick up, you learn things along the way about how food makes you feel, what, yes, yeah, and true. also like what actually helps satisfy you, what is going to help you adhere. So, you know, it's like Weight Watchers. There are so many things I disagree with, with with Weight Watchers, but one of the best things I learned was that you could still eat a good volume of food and feel satisfied, but still have it low energy density, so low calories. And I think when I talk to people now about how they eat and and they have a sandwich which might have, you know, a lot more calories, but because it's such a small volume, I, you know, that's just another lever that someone can pull to help change their approach to feel more satisfied and feel a little bit, you know, like something's achievable. Yeah, so I think um, going back to diets, like where I learned that, was when I did the, the, the like the thing that triggered all this off, and I'm not sure if you're going into <laughs> talking about eating now, but um, was you know being on and off diets mm -hmm. forever. Anyway, um, at the point where I discovered the zone diet, I actually had stopped dieting for about. Okay, how how old were you at this point? Uh, thirty five. How did you find it? Um, well. My husband, who wasn't my husband at the time, my boyfriend at the time, um, <laughs> he also interested in, in nutrition and sports and things. Um, he was over in America and picked up this book called Enter the Zone by Barry Sears. And he wrote, read it and thought, I'm going to try this. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. I read it. And interestingly, it wasn't just so much the weight loss, but um, this whole new realm of appetite regulation, optimizing your protein, favorable carbs versus unfavorable carbohydrates, yeah. favorable fats, unfavorable fats, like food quality played a really big role in optimizing protein and learning that, you know, four cups of broccoli has the same amount of carbohydrates as, you know, half a cup of rice. It's like, wow, I never knew that, you know. And managing your blood glucose and insulin levels, like reactive hypoglycemia had always been an issue for me, but I'd managed, I'd learned a lot about what carbs worked for me and what carbs didn't. And the other thing in his book he talked about was women he worked with who had PMT, whose PMT disappeared on this magic, you know, 40, 30, 30 ratio. Um, mm -hmm. So I thought, man, I was somebody that suffered from really 
intense breast pain before my periods. And I thought if I could manage that, that would make such a difference to my life quality. And if I could lose fat and keep my muscle, that would that's a real that's something I've never tried before. So yeah, I went on the zone diet and blood glucose regulation. I mean, I just felt so much energy and so much mental focus doing that. So Julian, can you just describe for those of you for those listening who wouldn't know the zone diet, what is what exactly is it? Like what are the exact what nutrients are like 40, 30 and 30? Like how does that look? Yeah, so it's based on the premise that every meal you eat provides hormonal control for the next four to six hours and each nutrient um, triggers a sequence of or, um, hormones so carbohydrates increase your blood glucose which increases your insulin levels fats can have some satiety effect on cck for example which is a appetite regulation hormone um, protein increases glucagon, which is also sent out by the pancreas, and glucagon increases your blood glucose um, via the liver. And he talked about having a balance of protein, carbohydrates, and fats in order to get this balance of insulin, glucagon, and also your blood glucose. And so that provided like a stability in your hormones and blood glucose for the next four hours. And um, so he had this kind of magic ratio, which is 30% calories from protein, 30% calories from fats, and 40% calories from carbohydrates, and a kind of a mix and match way of putting meals together. So, yeah, I was, so that's, yeah, that's it. Do you count um, calories on the zone? I can't remember. No, or... you don't. You don't count calories, but calories do reduce on the zone diet. So that's something I didn't understand at first, you know, like appreciate at first that um, because he didn't talk about calories. He just talked about um, grams of protein, carbs and fats at each meal. And it didn't occur to me that calories were quite markedly reduced because I didn't actually feel particularly hungry because that balance worked really well for me in terms of appetite regulation. Um, so, uh, yeah, calories are reduced, appetite regulation is improved, blood glucose balance is improved, and as a consequence, I lost five kilos over, you know, sort of three or four months, and I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and my PMT went away, my breast pain went away, and I still – I would love to know if anyone out there knows that mechanism for that. I don't quite understand how that worked, but it was quite miraculous yeah, for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so at the time, were you a nutritionist, Julianne, or did this spark your interest in nutrition? No, I wasn't. I was actually um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life. So again, <laughs> not for the first time. <laughs> so at the time, I had, was working as a wheelchair seating and positioning specialist so I'd done a postgrad diploma in design of equipment for disability in London and I'd spent the last 10 years um or the last six years working in that career um but not 
getting to the point where I'm not sure if I want to do this anymore was actually at um, art school full time decided to go back and be an artist because I've always been really good at it then discovered this nutrition thing and it was like mind blown I mean I cannot describe how enthusiastic I became when I discovered that diet could make such a significant impact on my health, on my energy, and my gym recovery, which is the other thing, because I was on a fairly low-protein vegetarian-type diet before that. And upping the protein, I was just like, I cannot believe the strength gains and the recovery as a result of increasing my protein. It was, like, miraculous. And do you actually also, just as a side note, um, this is what I see with clients all of the time and you must see it as well like when you make small changes to their protein light bulbs go off in their heads and they cannot believe that suddenly they're in control of their food as opposed to them feeling controlled by by their diet it is actually amazing yeah yeah and it's like every time you know I ask clients when I follow them up it's like um, so you've changed your diet. Oh, I don't even feel like snacking. Oh my gosh, I didn't even feel like chocolate after dinner anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I don't even miss it. And um, no, I'm not hungry. And yeah, I'm losing inches or whatever. And yeah, it's, it is quite amazing. Yeah. And just that feeling of more energy and more mental focus as well. It's not just the appetite regulation that, um, I see with you know clients and I saw with myself so then how did you get into the nutrition field as a career so when I discovered this zone diet thing I got more enthusiastic about that and less enthusiastic about art and design and it was a gradual process so I started um, learning more about the zone diet um, just gathered a bunch of friends and said I'm gonna do this talk on the zone diet do you want to come yeah so were you a nurse before doing your design yes yes. I was a nurse yeah first first off I trained as a nurse and then after a couple of years of nursing post-grad I went to design school did design and uh, furniture and interior design and then I went to London and did this post-grad diploma while still doing nursing part-time for an income. Yeah, yeah. And then came back to New Zealand and, and worked in that area for, uh, yeah, 10 years all up. Yeah. Yeah, and so did you have any specific nutrition qualifications at the time when you started? No, no. I just got enthusiastic and started <laughs> yeah. reading everything I could. Um and I did go to the States and do the zone coaching certificate so that I got my certificate in terms of um, being a zone diet coach. So that was really where I started, just being a zone diet coach. Yeah. And how was that, Julian? Was it sort of run a little bit like health coaching might be run these days? or um, uh, It was actually just a three or four, I think it was about a four-day full-time course in the States. And then at the end of it, there were, yeah, just, I, I don't know because I haven't done a health yeah, coaching yeah. course yet, so yeah. I can't really attest to that. So, yeah. Yeah, they just gave you all the information on working with clients, all the background, all the science. and Which yeah, I imagine and you of, would have known a lot of that anyway. But it Yes, but it was good to get that from people who were working in that particular field as coaches and nutritionists and 
Um, and it was only for people who had a health background, so they didn't accept anyone off the street. It was, you know, nursing, doctors, whatever. Yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. So you brought it back to New Zealand and you started practising. Yeah, so at first part-time and then um, after a while full-time. And, yeah, so I just did seminars one-on-one, just all with the zone diet and saw, like, quite amazing results with, you know, 95% of people that I worked with. So, you know, and just and the same as me in terms of weight loss, energy, um, even health conditions improving, you know, like when people improve the quality of their food, um, you know, I remember this client coming back and I didn't even think about the significance at the time, but there was one with psoriasis. She came back and goes, look, my patch of psoriasis is gone. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And now I'm going, that is incredible. <laughs> you know, psoriasis is a nasty and difficult thing to get rid of, but just changing her dietary quality, um, made a difference so and and do you think as well that would have to have to do with like the change in the blood sugar regulation and insulin and yeah look I in retrospect um because I've gone back and kind of analyzed what is it about the zone diet that made a difference so yes the change of macronutrients does um one of the things that there's a focus on is shifting to low glycemic carbohydrates and eating more favorable carbohydrates and less favorable ones. So the less favorable ones are generally the high GI refined grains. So a lot of people cut out grains altogether. So it's much more of a shift towards a paleo diet and the sort of thing I would use for my autoimmune clients. Um, So I imagine cutting out grains and even and perhaps gluten probably made a difference and increasing the amount of fruit and vegetables quality proteins um, omega-3 is a big part of the zone diet as well like getting adequate omega-3 either through um, oily fish or adding a supplement yeah so I think a combination of factors yeah and Julian how did your zone diet then transition to a paleo style approach like when did that come into the mix that came at CrossFit when I got the job when I got work at a CrossFit gym uh, 2009 one of the early Auckland CrossFit gyms then I learned about Rod Rob Wolf and the paleo diet and I thought I better find out about this because I'm working with CrossFit clients so one of the papers I read was um, Lorraine Cordain's one, which is um, cereal grains. Oh, I can't remember what it's called, but um, I know it, and I'll pop it in the show notes because I find it. You know, that, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so he talked about the increase in the amount of grains we are eating as um, a, as a society, as a population. Um, which allowed us to expand across the globe. But at the same time, this was something that um, has taken up a bigger and bigger part of our um, daily diet. Um, And he talked about the connection between cereal grains and autoimmune diseases. So first off, it's celiac disease, but there seems to be a flow-on effect to quite a number of other autoimmune diseases. And I have in my family and 
what I probably had was an autoimmune joint inflammation. So my knees would swell up after I'd done a bit of exercise. My neck was very sore and stiff. I had ganglion cysts on my wrists, which would come up and stay for years at a time. And my mother has lupus, had lupus. So that was in my family. So I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. I'll just try this paleo diet and see what happens. So that was kind of my next light bulb moment, if you like, with diet, because when I, after three weeks, my joint inflammation disappeared and my ganglion cyst, which had been 10 years on my wrist, just shrunk away. And I was like, that's amazing. And I can remember talking to my dad and going, I just can't believe that my knee is not swelling anymore. You know, it's just not, I'm not getting fluidy, hot knee, my left knee in particular. So I've now pinned it down to gluten. So gluten seems to be the main protagonist with me. And a lot of other, and now I realize why when I was on the zone diet, things improved, but things would come and go. So depending on how much gluten I would be having would depend on how good my joints were, my PMT, things like yeah, that. Yeah. So, so that was the next thing. And that was what got me really interested in the role of, um, diet in autoimmune diseases because after that my mother with lupus went on to the paleo diet and she has quite she had quite bad lung involvement she had small airways disease and in three weeks her small airways disease was like markedly improved wow and yeah my father who's a doctor you know he'd update me on these things so yeah and you ended up doing a postgraduate diploma in nutrition oh yes so prior to working at CrossFit I had actually done the graduate certificate which is um, a crossover course to bring you up to degree level in nutrition um, five papers altogether so I had already done that because I was thought if I want going to be a nutritionist I need to have some structured university training behind me and not just kind of do zone diet coaching forever so yeah so by the time I got to the paleo diet I'd done the grad cert and then um, about three years after that I did the postgraduate diploma over about three years yeah Julianne were you like because you obviously had such a background knowledge and understanding of hormones, food, and now the sort of immune component, how it impacts health. How, were you somewhat disappointed by what you were taught in nutrition school or were you happily surprised by what you were taught? Um, actually, I really enjoyed it and found it really valuable. Brilliant. Um, I think the main reason is the way it's structured. So I went to Massey, um, both the undergraduate papers with the grad cert um, and the PG DIP were structured in a way that we were given assignments and then we had to go into the clinical literature and write like literally a paper um, and reference it. So it actually gave me a really good understanding of um, researching clinical papers, writing and evidence-based nutrition um, as well. I was forced to learn nutritional biochemistry. So, and that is really useful, you know, like understanding what happens from the moment a food goes into your mouth until it gets dispersed and 
to all its various roles around the body. And I'd never actually, because that's something that, you know, it takes quite a bit of effort to learn on your own. But when you're forced to learn it, it's it's really, really useful. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like having that sort of that sort of grounded understanding of that then allows you as a practitioner to be able to sort or like when you're out there in social media for example um you're you're able to sort of sort what is you know really good sound information and actually just what is almost a myth or what people might think and might seem to make sense but actually doesn't make clinical or sort of biochemical sense I suppose exactly and that's what I'm always asking myself it's like, what's the mechanism here? You know, and also with the so-called fad diets, um, I know amongst nutritionists and I dare say it, dietitians, if people aren't doing the standard diet and somebody comes to them and go, oh, I'm doing so well on a keto diet or I'm doing so well on carnivore or, you know, a vegetarian diet is this particular vegetarian or plant-based diet is really helping me. There can be a lot of dismissive attitudes towards lay people who are getting results from diets. But my point of view is, what can I learn here from this person? So I'll start quizzing them, you know, and I don't care if it's at a party because, you know, it's fun for me talking about nutrition. Um, <laughs> like, oh, what are you eating? What have you noticed? What's changed? What did What happened before and what's happened now? And then in my mind, I'm going... What's the mechanism at play here? Why is this person getting these results from this diet? So I I find that super fascinating. Like, And I know this is why all the fad diets, and I don't like calling them fad diets, but we'll just use that term, um, are getting so much traction because people see changes and get results for themselves. And all I want to do is why? How is this happening? What's What's the cause? What's the reason? Um, because I know myself, back when I did the zone diet, I had no nutrition tra- training other than what I'd learned as a nurse. And I was raving about it, and I would do it publicly everywhere. Um, and I got a huge amount of flack from the trained nutrition community, and I would have these arguments in magazines and <laughs> on the radio and all kinds of places with them and I I was that person <laughs> a lot of nutritionists would go oh my god that keto person on the keto diet raving about it I was that person on the zone diet so I get it no I appreciate that and you know I feel like there's a little bit of um, well, first of all, I, I agree with you. I feel exactly the same. Like I'm always really curious as to how someone might thrive on a particular approach, even though it's not necessarily what might work for, for other people. And then also, I guess you and I are probably similar in that we then want to find what is the thing that's actually going to make the stick for someone as well? Like, So what are elements of what's working for them now that can actually stick and stay and make it sort of sustainable because sometimes with the fad, quote-unquote fad diet, it might in its entirety sort of seem extreme, but there will be elements that you can pull and and things that you can learn that you can then sort of um, put into place. Uh, But also, Julian, I'd really like to get your opinion, and this is 
Hey, have you seen more and more that anti-diet culture that is um, sort of pervading social media and, and things like that? I do, and I ha- I'm worried about that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I'm worried about the message that it sends to um, people who are carrying a lot of extra weight and it's having a negative effect metabolically on them. Because I... <sighs> I look at how, at the environmental aspect. So I think, I think one thing that's good is shifting it away from you're personally a faulty person because you're carrying extra weight. Because there's so many, you know, emotional, psychological, societal, environmental aspects, genetic aspects to it. But I do worry about, is it normalizing that it's okay to carry extra weight and eat whatever is available in your environment? Because I, I, there are consequences. You know, like the human body is designed for survival. The human body will put on weight far, far more easily than it is taking it off. And that's a hormonal aspect of, you know, the whole how our leptin works it will make sure our fat cells are always filled up and it's designed that way but our environment is designed never to have us have those periods of deprivation that say a hunter-gatherer would where they would then lose that body fat and then gain it again in a, in a time of plenty so our our genes plus our environment and with that message those three things together, I, I that concerns me. Yeah, I yeah. feel similarly in in that I I worry for people who do carry excess body weight that places them at that increased risk, and it and it does. And you know, and this is certainly not, I'm not talking about people who might be, um, who might get the real positive outcome of recognizing that, you know, three or four kilos over what you deem your ideal weight is actually not worth the mental burden that that can place on someone, you know? So, so there are, you know, there are absolutely real positives from, from recognizing that you're not necessarily unhealthy just because you're in a bigger frame or bigger, you know, but it's just a fine balance as to, you know, is it such a health promoting message? I know it's supposed to be a really positive message and in some ways it is, but isn't always necessarily maybe landing the way that it should I don't know and as a health professional that does concern me as well I think there yeah there are some positives like it takes the focus of constantly kind of being in that diet frame of mind but to me it I don't see the promotion of healthful diets in that message particularly yeah 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 any kind of deprivation is, I don't know, this is how I hear the message and I might be getting it wrong, but it seems like any kind of deprivation or self-control is diet culture and diet culture is bad. And I, I don't think that's particularly useful. I mean, and and like you, you know, like I, when I first changed my diet, I had dreadful cravings for chocolate but I would have my chicken and my salad and then I'd have half a chocolate bar 
a small chocolate bar afterwards. So I'd manage that um, within like flexible dieting. I, I actually quite like that approach much better. Yeah, but to have a sort of a no deprivation diet in our current environment, I mean, that's led us to the problems that we have today. Julianne, I'd like to revisit where we left off with regards to your own preparation for the powerlifting course. For you to move from that 53 to 52, you needed to instigate a low-calorie diet, as I understood. Um, Yes, so it, it is restrictive. So how I do it is I work out how much protein I need. So that's that's the crucial um, thing. So when you're wanting to um, calorie restrict to lose body fat, so I only want to lose body fat, I don't want to lose strength, I don't want to lose my muscle, I work out how much protein I need. So I do that at about 2.5 grams per kg body weight a day, and I divide that into four. So three meals and one slightly smaller snack. Um, and then I track. I cannot lose body fat and optimize my protein without weighing my food and putting it in an app. So normally I wouldn't bother with that. I just kind of know how much I need to eat. But when I'm cutting body fat, have to put it. I use chronometer because I kind of like that's it's what I'm familiar with and I quite like that. Um, so I cut my fat calories right down because my carb calories I need for training because um, anything that's glycolytic, you need to have good muscle glycogen. You just feel better and I need to have a decent amount of carbs before I train. So I cut it right down to the point where I'm losing around 300 grams a week and I'll just track my calories and if I'm not losing that much, I'll just drop it a little bit. And sometimes it ends up my protein is 40 to 50% of my diet, but only for that period when I'm cutting, yeah. When I went up and competed at under 57 last year, I actually went up to 56 kilos. So I did it in a series of steps. So I cut back down to about, you know, 54 and a half and that took a few weeks then I cut down to 53 and a half and that took a couple of months so I don't do it fast and then for my last kilo um, it took about four weeks so I lose about 250 grams a week and that last 500 grams you do with a water cut and pooping it out yeah, yeah. And any any room for diet breaks in there, Julianne? Yeah, uh, I tend to, if I know I've got a lot of weight to lose, I won't do it all in one go. So I'll maybe do a diet for a couple of months and then maintain. And to maintain, I still have to track because once I've lost weight, if I just go back to kind of eating what kind of feels comfortable, I will probably, I tend to gain a little bit of weight back so for a while a few weeks a couple of weeks I will just track and get a sense of what do, what portions do I need right now to um, maintain my weight at the slightly lower weight because it's not the same amount of food as I ate when I was at a higher weight so I tend to do it in chunks so I'll do a diet for a couple of months and then stop for a while and then do it again 
Um, I was doing about 1,200 calories as as measured in my app. So as we know, apps and measuring aren't necessarily a super accurate um, representation of actually how many calories I was eating, but that's what, what is in my app. And then for a while, I was really struggling to lose weight on 1,200, so I actually dropped it to just over a thousand for a, just a very short time. It was only about three weeks. And then that kind of pushed me into fat loss again. And I don't know what it is. I think it's age. I think perhaps um, I'm fairly sedentary outside of my um, training, although I try and go on a decent walk most days. And I think that plays a role because I'm really not using a lot of um, energy apart from when I'm going to the gym and doing my training. I do need to be that low and I know some people would look at that and go freak out you're doing under 1200 calories a day you must be dead and that is really bad for you and you'd go into red s and all the rest of it but I sleep well I still have energy I don't have any symptoms of being underfed my training is still going well so I do monitor all of those things as well um, because I think we need to be really um, mindful of the effect, the personal effect of a low-calorie diet on ourselves. <sighs> I haven't been as active in my um, blogging as I used to be. However, I do try and pop things in my Instagram stories regularly, and I'm on Twitter as well. So Twitter and Instagram are probably the best places if you want to follow what I'm thinking about. Um, otherwise, if you just Google Julianne Taylor Nutritionists, you'll find my website. And that was my conversation with Julianne. Something happened with the audio right at the end of that, so you didn't sort of get our uh, goodbyes or anything, but we captured everything that uh, Julianne had to say, which is awesome. Next week on the podcast, I sit down and chat to Brett Scher from Diet Doctor, cardiologist. Awesome conversation. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to signing up to Monday's Matter, you can book a one-on-one consult with me, sign up to the recipe portal access to get an access to over 900 recipes regularly updated, my weekly email, Facebook Lives, particularly for our member-only group, and a whole bunch of other just good stuff. Till next week, team. Have a good one. See you then.